The following podcast is for healthcare professionals only. All views expressed belong to our speakers and don't necessarily reflect those of Nestle Health Science. This series was recorded in lockdown, so please forgive our audio quality while we didn't have access to a studio. Hello and welcome to Inside Medical Nutrition podcast, a podcast styled by Nestle Health Science and hosted by me, Dr. Lillian Patel. In today's episode, we will be discussing the importance of a multidisciplinary team approach in the management of patients with dysphagia. And for the episode, I'm delighted to be joined by two experts in the field, Sandra Robinson, an independent speech and language therapist, and Caroline Hill, a freelance dietitian. So to start off with, could you please tell us a little bit more about yourselves? My name's Sandra Robinson. I'm an independent speech therapist and um, I had worked for the NHS for about 10 years before becoming independent. And my role at the moment is um, working with people with both communication and swallow disorders, but dysphagia is my specialist interest. And I also provide business consultancy work to organisations, some of whom are global, some of whom are startups or charities. Um, So my week is a a bit of a mix of patient facing. Um, So there is still a lot of clinical work and the more commercial and business side of what can we do to support people with dysphagia? What kind of innovations are out there? How can we bring them to improve the quality of life for people with dysphagia? Very interesting. And Caroline? So yeah, I'm Caroline. I'm a freelance dietitian and have been for the last three years. Prior to that, I did a mixture of working in the NHS and also in the medical nutrition industry. Um, and I have a special interest in dysphagia after working in the medical nutrition industry um, and have used that experience um, in writing publications for dietetic magazines around the topic of dysphagia and the relationship with nutrition. Um, and then as part of our work with Dysphagia Kitchen, Sandra and I, alongside our chef um, Gary, also deliver um, dysphagia training, looking at the IDSI framework, um, dysphagia, the nutritional aspects, and also providing, um, preparing IDSI compliant food for care homes. Great. So clearly you both bring a lot of expertise and experience within dysphagia care. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So my first question is to ask why an MDT approach is important within dysphagia care. I think the first thing that I would do, and you can tell I'm a speech therapist, is check the definition of multidisciplinary team working. Very good. Um, the, reason, the reason I say that is because there is a little bit of confusion in the literature and in practice about the kind of three broad different approaches. And there's the multidisciplinary approach, the interdisciplinary approach and the transdisciplinary approach. And I think that multidisciplinary approach is probably what we see most of in acute settings, especially, um, and in community settings where you do have the team of professionals, the dietitians, the speech therapists, physios, other, other HPs, etc., who do independently treat patients. But from their own perspective, there, there might not be as much interaction with the other professionals as would be optimal. Mm-hmm. And there might be one meeting a week or they might just catch each other in the corridor. And sometimes that's how the multidisciplinary approach ends up. 
I think the most optimal is the interdisciplinary approach where we actively work together in a really coordinated manner Mm -hmm. um, supporting patients where the information is exchanged and communicated clearly we have a consensus for treatment and for goals and when I hear MDT I kind of translate it into I'd really rather that was IDT. Um, I did also briefly mention transdisciplinary, and I kind of I think that's probably happened a little bit during COVID. And I know we might come on to some more of that later, where disciplinary boundaries are blurred, and you might find that other colleagues are picking up some elements of a role that you would usually do in your own discipline, and that's usually because of things like geography. Um, mm. You you might be out in the middle of nowhere. But to me, the interdisciplinary approach is the is the optimal for, especially for our patients with dysphagia, and of course, working closely with dietitians such as Caroline. Yeah. So you mentioned rather than called talking about MDT, much better to refer to it as IDT. Yeah, I think with kind of whether it's multidisciplinary or IDT type working, I think when you look at how dietitians and speech and language therapists work, particularly with people who've got dysphagia. It's very much your IDT type way of working where you're doing maybe joint assessments and joint consultations and the impact of your intervention is influencing the other person's consultation and outcome at that point in time. Whereas I think sometimes, as Sandra possibly alluded to with MDT working, it may be you're just feeding into a conversation that happens once a week. Um, So everyone has full visibility on the conversation and and the intervention that you're providing as a clinician. But actually, in terms of working together, I think it's more the interdisciplinary that has more, the most benefit to the patient. Yeah. And what other members would there be other than, for example, the speech and language therapist and the dietitian within this MDT team? Good question. (laughs) I think it depends what setting you're in. Um, that will make the difference as to exactly who makes up that that team other allied health professionals um, such as the physio and in dysphagia management a physio could help with things like posture and respiratory support Mm -hmm. the occupational therapists who will help in things like the activities of daily life function and cognition plays a large part in supporting people with dysphagia as well therapy assistants are really integral and sometimes the assistants get get forgotten but actually they, I think they, they do the get glue that hold it all together yeah. Yeah. yeah they're the ones who are doing and delivering the care that you maybe have set out as part of your your care plan for that individual yeah. so um uh, big up thank you to all the assistants out there mm-hmm. um as, and and of course you can't do all this without the nurses or the healthcare assistants or the assistant practitioners And most of the time, of course, it will be overseen by a medic. And for patients with dysphagia, you would expect those to be the specialists in, say, stroke, neuro, head and neck, ENT, max fax, geriatrics, those sorts of areas. And there's a whole host of others. And it also varies from country to country. I noticed in some literature recently in Japan, more integrated into the teams are dental hygienists. Oh. And we don't, yeah, and we don't have that over here. And and given the importance of things like mouth care to support people with dysphagia, that would be great to be able to have more dentists and dental hygienists involved. I think that would be really beneficial, wouldn't it? Because it really raised the importance of oral care. Because we all know about the importance of it for people with dysphagia, but actually, if they were part of the core MDT, you'd make sure that, that element wasn't wasn't forgotten. Because I think that's one of the the real key benefits of having as many 
different disciplines within the multidisciplinary team is that it's a prompt and a reminder that all of those different elements that are so important when looking after someone with dysphagia it's not just necessarily about the food that they're eating it might be about the medication that they're taking it might be about their oral care so of course pharmacists play a role and there's a very very long list but I also don't want to miss out the chefs the catering colleagues Mm -hmm. because we can't do this without them uh, in all of the settings and of course the patients and their families themselves. Mm. And how about um, the MDT in primary care how does that vary and who should be more involved within primary care? Of course, you've got the, I mentioned medics earlier, and in primary care, everything would be along with the GP. It gets a little bit trickier, I think, sometimes in some settings. It depends how the service or the services are set up. I have worked in one trust that was a lovely example of integrated working, where I would go out to see a patient in their own home who had dysphagia during assessment and it might be that whilst I was there I noticed that there were some other things that were a bit tricky for them and their family needed some more support and within a day or two I could have a physio or an OT out to support them and Mm -hmm. get the equipment in, check mobility, make sure that person is safe but also in that team there were the community nurses would have much easier access. This This is one thing that can be tricky in the community. You can have much easier access to the notes. You can see everything, and including access to things that psychologists may have written or social workers, to try and create that joined-up working with and not just around the person with dysphagia so they don't feel like they're completely out on their own in primary care in the community. And I think sometimes in primary care, particularly with your specialist MDT, so whether it's for people who have... Um, something like Parkinson's disease or maybe a head and neck cancer you'll then have the specialist nurses mm, and yes. there could be a real bridge between the medical side of things and then also you as the HP and then the patients which can make a real difference as well because sometimes it can be that particularly in the primary care setting where sometimes it can be a little bit more disjointed because you're not all together and you're in mm-hmm. various different settings it means communication has to be so key between all of the participants in that MDT but actually having someone like a specialist nurse can help to almost bring all of that together because they overlap in everyone's kind of specialist area which can really help and I can imagine also there must be overlaps and extended roles so for example a dietitian doing a basic swallowing assessment or a speech and language therapist also assessing nutritional status of the patient so again the communication being really important there There are some overlaps. Um, uh, Usually those who will do a screening, a swallow screen assessment, would be um, nurses trained by speech therapists. Not uncommon in acute medical settings and in stroke. Um, And there is some training that goes on in nursing homes to support the nurses and the carers there to do the screens. Um, The Speech therapists will rarely train others than the the nurses um, for the most part. And we work very closely with dietitians, um, but just as we wouldn't look to assess nutrition most of the time, the the dietitians wouldn't 
be screening or assessing in swallow, but they're very good at spotting when somebody's got a difficulty and referring on to us. And a number of times, um, quite quite a lot of our referrals, both in community and in hospital, will be from the dietitian. I think in the UK, that's where there's a real clear distinction between the role of a speech and language therapist and a dietitian. And our overlap is around doing joint assessments and delivering care in a joint manner rather than necessarily taking on each other's roles. So even though I have a special interest in dysphagia, mm-hmm. I, I'm more than happy to leave that, that aspect <laughs> of care to the speech and language therapist, but really be able to use that that knowledge that I've got to be able to to shape my care plan and use all my nutritional expertise to the best of my ability and then which is which is so needed I mean us speech therapists we know that people with dysphagia um about 50 percent are usually experiencing um you know are malnourished exactly yeah and it's it's part of our holistic approach to make sure that the the person with dysphagia is getting all of the input that they require and I think as well kind of looking at it from the other side if you've got patients who are really malnourished have we as a dietitian considered that that have they got a swallowing problem is is, Mm -hmm. is there an underlying swallowing issue there and it certainly would I wouldn't feel happy to do any form of swallow assessment but it'd be that conversation that I'd have with a speech and language therapist to think does there need to be some form of assessment taking place yeah, so you've talked about malnutrition screening for patients. So what other benefits are there of an MDT approach for patients? I think one of the major, one of the things that is most, it has come across as most important for patients to me is that the, the needs, wishes and preferences of that person are understood by the whole team yeah. and not that's just not one person. And again, that's that interdisciplinary approach. And sometimes by working together, with the patient we get a better understanding of what their needs wishes and preferences are and that can get lost a little bit sometimes in that multidisciplinary or transdisciplinary approach and they are key to all of it if you're working in neuro rehab which is one of the areas I work in most you can't set goals or well it's very difficult to even understand the primary impairment um completely on your own sometimes you need to work with other members of the team to help with that here's a member of the team I forgot the radiographers so if we're carrying out videophoroscopies for example we'd need um we absolutely need them um so to help recognize what the difficulty is in the first place to educate the the person with dysphagia about that to look at what are your goals what's going to be the best targeted treatment to help you meet those goals how are we going to measure outcomes so how how will we know Um, along with your self-reporting, how much progress we've made. So that approach, one of the benefits, is that we are all singing from the same hymn sheet. And I think that gives the patient way more confidence as well, knowing that they're not having to repeat the same concerns or same barriers (laughs) to numerous healthcare professionals and then be unsure actually whether that's going to make a difference whereas if they know that it's been it's been said to one audience and all of those relevant clinicians are involved I think there's a bit more kind of trust there and knowing that they're getting listened to and that there's going to be hopefully then a, yeah. a clear plan of action and expectations about maybe what's going to happen on their journey to hopefully recovery. One of the biggest issues isn't it is communication. Without and a doubt. It, yeah. it, 
absolutely could be that the person is getting the right treatment but if things aren't communicated clearly um, to the patient uh, with the patient and their family um, then it it does leave them feeling anxious or um, having a complete misunderstanding of what's going to happen next it really does um, aid communication and I think even more so in the dysphagic population because more often than not they may also have communication issues mm. absolutely so actually yes. then for them even being able to maybe express some of their their concerns could be a challenge in the first place and um, so having a forum that allows just maybe one environment where they have to be able to where they're able to share their concerns rather than repeat trying to repeat it which could be quite exhausting for them yeah so we've talked a lot about different things and at the center of it is patient-centered care and the importance mm-hmm. of communication I'd be really interested to learn, I know we've touched on this a little bit, um, what the gold standard or best practice in terms of an MDT approach is for dysphagia management. Again, I think it depends very much on the individual you're working with because individualised care is optimal and the way that the multidisciplinary team supports one person with dysphagia may be different to the way they support another person with dysphagia. And the underlying condition for the dysphagia may make a significant difference as well, because of course dysphagia is a symptom, it doesn't exist without an underlying condition. It may be that the person's had a stroke, or it could be something completely different, like a gastro issue. It could be an esophageal dysphagia. And those services work in different ways because those patients have different needs and there are different treatment options. And the multidisciplinary team will ostensibly look like they could be working in slightly different ways, but they'll still be in the best interests of the individual person with dysphagia. And it may be, and as has been the case recently with COVID, that we've had to adapt practices to make sure that we can provide as optimal care as possible. Whereas once it was face-to-face and now some of it might even be telehealth. Um, So we're constantly learning as a speech therapy profession, a dietetic profession and so on, how to adapt to some of those challenges that perhaps we weren't expecting, but that there is still the evidence base um, to support um, those patients. And that is one of the other one of the most important things to do to support people with dysphagia is to know the evidence base, to understand what it is that's going on for that person, to know how to fully assess it, what the best treatments will be, and that all of the MDT understand um, the most important evidence base and how to put that into practice. I think that comes back to, doesn't it, the age old of the importance of communication whether it's with yes. the, the patient who is being discussed by the MDT or actually the members of the MDT and being really clear about, kind of like you say, about why you're recommending what you're recommending because it's based on the on the evidence that exists and communicating that with the team. Um, and obviously with the current times and how we're all operating slightly differently um, because of COVID um, and maybe the reliance a little bit more on kind of the virtual way of working, communication mm-hmm. is just so key because I think sometimes particularly when you're wanting to ensure that it is patient-centered care the patient sometimes can get 
lost in that vision um, and it's making yeah. sure that communication exists so they're they're fully informed about actually what's being discussed about them and when yes um particularly if it is more of an mdt approach which might be on a, a weekly basis it might be less frequent than that and opening up that communication to the patients they know when they maybe are going to get an answer or some more information about the next part of their care plan mm. yeah you've both mentioned covid um so could you tell me a little bit more about Sorry, couldn't help it. <laughs> of how your care and your approach has evolved within this COVID period? There has been um, a, a relatively recent history of the use of telemedicine and telehealth in speech therapy. Mostly, as I'd alluded to earlier, it was in places where the geography kind of demanded it. And that would be places like Australia or Canada or um, awesome parts of Scotland. Um, so the evidence base was there that these things can be done both from the point of view of carrying out teleassessment and teletherapy, but also MDT meetings via telemedicine. And we could see that there was a significant number of benefits to it, but I think the worry was always, is it as effective? Is, is it an equal to? We have to be very careful to make sure, just as we always do, that we're delivering the right treatment in the right way for that person at the right time. And so we have to make a judgment call about, yes, we've kind of been forced into the virtual world more than ever before. What can we do to optimise this for the person with dysphagia and keep them safe? If we can't, how are we going to how are we going to manage that? Because, of course, supporting some people with dysphagia are so vulnerable we end up relying and we can't do it without a facilitator a person on the other end to help carry out a dysphagia assessment or some dysphagia therapy um, who's gone through some training and preparation by the speech therapy team who's confident and competent to support that person but it's a lot to ask because sometimes it might not be a nurse in a nursing home that's a facilitator it's somebody's wife or husband or son or daughter and it's also difficult if the person with dysphagia has aphasia or another communication difficulty and we're not face to face it completely changes the whole dynamic so we have a a lot to learn um, and had to learn quickly during the pandemic and how to keep up with the tech and how to make yeah. sure the tech worked yeah which is what makes lots of people anxious isn't it I think the success and the the challenges that exist in kind of looking after patients in the current situation that we're living in with COVID and some of the restrictions that still remain in place is that for some situations it can actually work really effectively um, mm. doing virtual type consultations and um, if you've got the access of video consultations you know my freelance practice is completely virtual and that's been really effective I've not seen a, an impact but then if you look at the complete opposite of that and people who, who are living with dysphagia are likely to be older be care home residents may not be technology mm. adept so then as a result are you, you maybe are relying on other forms of consultation so it might be a telephone consultation so purely from a nutrition perspective I've done quite a lot of um locum work where we've just done um telephone consultations and it doesn't replace the face-to-face -face because sometimes you just need to be able to eyeball the patients and think mm. oh what they're telling me yeah how accurate is that 
and you do then become a lot more reliant on wider members of the MDT particularly if people are living in their own homes and what other people are going into their home on a regular basis like the district nurses how can they support support mm. which can feel quite difficult then because you feel like sometimes you might be putting an extra burden on on another healthcare professional um, yes. whereas in normal circumstances you'd be the person going in and doing that assessment and being able to do those visual checks um, so I think yeah there's lots of pros and cons to both ways of working I think yeah um, yes and it sounds like you've both done a lot of work virtually. So would you be able to share some of your best practice tips for virtual consultations? I agree with my Royal College who have in, in big capital letters, I think, on one of their web pages, be prepared. <laughs> yeah. um, they, have a, they have a lot of um, guidance now. We're a very good resource to go to to keep up to date on the, on the latest. And, and I would say for all speech therapists to keep visiting that. But being prepared with the tech and supporting people on the other end as much as possible. And that there was evidence that even if it was some online training that a facilitator carried out, um, that was incredibly helpful. But knowing that that person is a facilitator, not a proxy, you are the speech therapist carrying out the dysphagia assessment. And it's super difficult, I think, if it's a person you've never met before. I think the teletherapy that I did, the vast majority of the people I was reviewing, um, I'd met them before. I'd, I'd physically seen them face to face and assessed their swallow before. However, it can still work. And one of, one of those that I carried out right in the middle of the pandemic, I... Um, was they say be prepared but this one was a little bit oh we weren't as quite so prepared a little bit of a panic from a unit um where an elderly gentleman's swallow had changed significantly mm -hmm. and they couldn't quite work out why and he wasn't so poorly to be admitted to hospital i was working locuming in a hospital at the time during the pandemic received a call and said they were saying help and so I said, okay, lunchtime, jumped on a call on my mobile in a quiet office with nobody else around and managed to do a, a tele-assessment session over my mobile. But again, of course, it helped because I already knew him. And it was there were nurses at the other end um, and, and a physio. And so we could get the positioning right. We could get all sorts of the, you know, making sure he was he was upright and fully alert Great. and knowing knowing what to assess with first and how to progress and and so on it worked um and we did have to make some changes and he was kept safe and optimized and he got his nutrition and his hydration um but that was an example of just having to actually think on your feet and work quite quickly um but because i had already done some of those back in an office on a laptop with all the tech Mm -hmm. It meant that we could be a bit more prepared for the for the more ad hoc, urgent, in inverted commas, assessment that was needed. Fantastic. I think to add on to that, I think a couple of things that always jump into my mind is making sure you've got protected space to limit any form of distraction. Um, obviously, sometimes in working in the NHS, that's not always the easiest, but wherever possible, if you're doing virtual clinic consultations try and get a, a, a room booked out or use the clinic room that you would normally use even if you're not seeing any patients face to face because just having no distractions means that you've got less barriers to overcome when, and you can really focus on yeah. speaking to your 
to your patient and also sometimes just setting expectations at the beginning of the call so the patient knows what 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 they're going to get out of it and that it's no different to them coming to see you face to face we're just having to adapt during these times and I think that can really help put them at ease if they know what what the format of the conversation is going to look like and that they're not going to get any less quality care just because it's over the telephone or via video and one thing I will just say, um, just to be clear, um, I, I appreciate that colleagues who work in the NHS have very specific platforms that they can use on the video calls. Um, and there's a, obviously a great deal of clinical governance and so on. Um, and when I have used something like my mobile phone to assess a patient, they've been a private patient. We've already worked through all of the protocols and got consent and agreements in place as to what can be used for confidentiality and so on. Yeah, fantastic tips. Thank you. So if we were to fast forward a little bit into the future, how do you see the future management of patients with dysphagia evolving? Oh, <laughs> who knows? Because so many things happen that you don't expect to have happened. And um, in a way, I almost feel, though, as if we need to look again at dysphagia education in this country. Definitely. Speech and language therapists currently in the UK are trained in dysphagia at a postgraduate level. Mm -hmm. Most of the universities in the rest of the Anglosphere, they're trained at undergraduate level. Now, of course, when when you train and you get your degree, it doesn't mean you're absolutely 100% ready to go and you've got loads of experience under your belt, but it helps, I think, to start at the undergraduate level, but it needs to be super robust. I would also add in that I think there's something here about our profession, our job title. We are speech and language therapists and I go to see somebody with a swallow problem, tell them I'm the speech therapist and the first thing they'll say is there's nothing wrong with my speech. And you get that <laughs> and I say that the speech, that's the speech and language therapist mean, but I can speak okay. <laughs> absolutely and I wonder if there's something here about a title like dysphagia practitioner yeah um to and all of this is about raising the awareness and understanding of dysphagia in the first place there is so much more to dysphagia and so many more places that I think dysphagia um education and training and um, assessment and treatment and instrumental assessments is going and so much innovation that's happening and of course ITSI came in which has been a a really big help Um, but I think we we would do well to go back to some fundamentals and take a really good look at the education um, and the raising awareness of what dysphagia is in the first place for um, for patients I think it's has really highlighted that, hasn't it? That there's there's a, 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 there is a bit of a gap in mm. some of the basics and the fundamentals of the understanding of of dysphagia across the board, across a huge variety of different healthcare professionals. And I think if you get that right, everything else will build up on that naturally. Um, and then hopefully some of the work that you have to do, then Sandra's a speech and language therapist, yeah. isn't battling some of the basics because they're already laid in place and you're actually able to just just then implement a care plan quite hopefully quite smoothly and seamlessly exactly exactly well it's been such an interesting conversation with you both and i could definitely keep on asking more questions but um, we must wrap up so the title of this episode is the importance of an mdt approach in the management of patients with dysphagia so if you were to leave our listeners with perhaps one or two key takeaways 
What would they be? I would say this is a speech therapist. Keep talking. <laughs> as well as as well as listening very carefully to whoever is talking and that might be your patient um, I took every opportunity I possibly could when I did a bedside clinical evaluation of somebody's swallow to let that person know what I thought was going on for them and what we should do next and the same with every member of the team mm-hmm. and it's always an opportunity for education through conversation it doesn't have to be done formally. It can just be, well, it's just there writing your notes or thinking about what to put in your notes, having a quick chat with the nurse and saying, I've seen this and I'm suggesting this, but this is the reason why. And often by sharing that rationale, pe- people have a greater understanding and they're more likely to follow your recommendations as well. So I think there's something there about, we talked about communication, but taking those opportunities for education amongst the team. Yeah, fantastic. And Caroline? I think probably from a nutrition perspective, I would encourage dietitians to really work closely with speech and language therapists. Um, whether they have a patient who has dysphagia and is on, for example, a texture modified diet, or whether they suspect someone might have a swallowing problem and maybe look at doing joint consultations because that can really ensure yes. that you're optimising adequate nutrition and hydration, which is essentially the goal of dietetic intervention in this patient group yeah yeah okay fantastic so our take-home messages are keep talking and work closely, especially in she's a speech and language therapist it's been an absolute pleasure talking to both of you um so thank you very much for your time thank you thank Thank you thank you for listening to this episode of inside medical nutrition if you enjoyed the podcast and found the content useful please share it with your colleagues and consider subscribing so you never miss an episode. For more information on this topic or to share your feedback, please visit the Nestle Health Science N Plus Hub or click on the link in the show notes.